Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I got some exciting news, folks. Really, really. I am now in a published offer, and my book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble in paperback and Kindle edition. It's titled Remarkable Leadership Lessons Change Results One Conversation at a Time. I wrote it so that you can see the power and potential in you and know that if you show up, step up, and speak up, you will be able to get the results you really want. You know, what stops us is complacency, being comfortable with fear, being less than, and believing we are not enough to be respected, loved, and worthy of something more because we experience the world differently than others. I often say that being a leader is dangerous. It requires being on the line for something you believe in, whether it's to change the future, walk in faith, or stand for an unpopular value. Being a leader is a contact sport, one where there are times when you will have high impact and others where you're going to just take a good lunch. This podcast is all about sharing stories and insights on how to avoid the gut punch, as well as rise after getting the wind knocked out of you. And my guest, Dr. James Kelly, who's the author of a book called The Crucible's Gift. He's also the CEO of a work tech company called QChange. Well, let me tell you, if you love the work of Brene Brown, you're going to love Dr. James Kelly. He has so much to say. And as you listen to he and I, we're going to guide you on a deep exploration on how to become an authentic leader and what gets in the way and how your organization can help you develop the skills based on 21st century research that is proven to be effective and technology which will enable us to leverage that research so that we can all rise and be better leaders. At the end, and please stay till the end, this is a long podcast I know, but we're going to talk about Q-Change and why technology may be the answer to developing more self-awareness, integrity, compassion, and the ability to relate to others and inspire them to do something different. James is a highly sought after international speaker, interviewed, and he interviewed over 140 executives from around the world to learn how leaders transform their leadership styles after moments of adversity, that gut punch. So if you wanna learn how to move your leadership style from it happened to me to it happened for me, then this conversation, James's book, The Crucible Gift, maybe exploring Q-Change is the place for you to start. With that, hey, let's move on. Hey, James, how you doing? Thank you so much for being on my podcast. I thought we'd start with a little bit about you, your background. Right now, you're in Bend, Oregon? Yeah? Arguably one of the prettiest cities, um, if you like nature, in the country. So it's mm-hmm. it's a very... Um, popular place now and it's only a population of about 90,000 but it's it's becoming a very popular place for startups and for entrepreneurs who want to get out of Silicon Valley or Seattle or Portland who love the outdoors um there's four seasons and it never gets too hot it never gets too cold you're 30 minutes from like some of the best skiing um 
like yeah, it's just that basically it's an outdoor mecca at the end of the mm-hmm. day. And so if you like that lifestyle, it's it's a lifestyle city. So people move here to work hard during the day, but if you're if you're there's a big snowfall at two o'clock in, in the afternoon, you want to run in the mountains, you run in the mountains. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My background um is kind of unique in some ways, and in some ways maybe not so unique, depends on who you ask. But you know, I'm I'm a consumer psychologist by training, and so I spent mm-hmm. you know four years living in Australia, getting my PhD at a, at a top university. And wait a minute, did um, you I, say consumer psychologist? Yep, consumer psychology. Oh, okay. Yeah. So is that like behavioral unique. economics? Yeah. Uh, close. Consumer mm-hmm. psychologist is basically like psychology for consumers. So okay. if you think about why you buy, when you buy, how you buy. Um, what are the factors that influence your choice making as a consumer? That's mm-hmm. the best way to look at it. I, I believe behavioral economics is more around patterns um, mm-hmm. and predicting the patterns through psychology and mm-hmm. um, some other factors as well. Okay. So you're the, one, you're yeah. the step before the data is gathered. Well, we gather data. It's just a different way to do it. It's a different methodology. So you know, my background is looking at um, different aspects of why consumers across cultures buy global brands and what oh, okay. factors make someone more cosmopolitan, meaning more worldly versus more local, uh, and, and how do you adjust the messaging and uh, to influence their, their purchase behavior. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fine, which is completely not leadership in some ways, but if you kind of peel back the the undercurrents of what we're doing a consumer psychology, it's the same right. thing in leadership. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So how did you get into the leadership part? <laughs> well, um, when I first went to go get my PhD, uh, I started off in organizational behavior, so OB and leadership. And my advisor at the time left, and I didn't want to switch schools. And so there were two other really well-known professors at my university um, which is the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. And so I just kind of pivoted over to marketing because I enjoyed marketing as well. But I, I've been passionate about leadership and management for a super long time. I just never really entered it. I kind of just dabbled in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think in life, you really are given a series of nudges, and you can either choose to listen to the nudge or choose to ignore the nudge, but either way, that nudge is going to smack you in the face harder and harder every time until you actually do what you're meant to be doing. Um, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, is what happened to me. I just kind of kept doing things that kept putting me in the leadership space, and I just at some point had to stop trying to be a consumer psychologist and start trying to use that to help people be better human beings and better leaders. And so... Are um, you're moving to the states? Are you were you born and raised here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I didn't oh, okay. move for for 17 years. We were in the same 900 square foot house with people my whole entire life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we grew up we grew up low low middle class. At the end of the day, you know, we didn't have a lot, uh, and, and so as soon as I could go to college, um, uh, I, I was lucky enough to get in because I was not a great student. Uh, so as soon as I got in, I left Portland, and from that day on, I've only been back in the Northwest, you know, from any significant amount of time, twice for a total of two years over the last 25. Okay. So I've I've been I've been really lucky. So you know, I went to 
went to college in the Midwest. Um, if you follow basketball, University of Dayton, which is now the number seven in the country. Yeah. I'm very proud about that. Um, okay. I went to University of Dayton. Uh, and then from after that, I graduated there. I moved to Chicago for a bit. And then my first stint back in Portland was starting an advertising agency for a company, opening an office for a national company. And then I went to San Jose. Uh, I got fired for the first time ever down in San Jose, uh, which was a pleasurable experience. And then I moved <laughs> to, to New York. Um, and I was in New York for two years getting my MBA at a small liberal arts college. And then I went from there to Japan for a year. Spent a year in Japan after I finished my MBA. And this is 2003-ish. Came back. This is the second time I lived in Portland for a short stint. And I was doing basically cold calling for a software company. And then I went from there to Perth, Australia. Got my PhD in Perth. Came back to Philadelphia. I was in Philadelphia for seven years teaching in higher ed. Uh, and then I moved to the Middle East for the last four years. And um, in that process, I got married, had four kids. And I mean, it's a it's a quick summary because my life is not that linear. But right, <laughs> right, right, right. For your audience, <laughs> I was gonna say um, <laughs> yeah. uh, such uh, you know all our, all lives are circular, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god we, yeah yeah we don't think about it but in reality our if uh our life is pretty circular you wrote this book i did oh yeah i forgot about that the crucible yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The, the crucible <laughs> <laughs> this thing called the crucible <laughs> mm -hmm. yes yes <laughs> yeah um that was that was a labor you know what that so that was, again, one of those nudges for leadership. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, if I was to give you like the, the, the real story is that I've always struggled with leadership and I always struggled having people men mentor me with leadership. And I've always struggled to understand why leaders are so bad or bad. Like I know, people. right? <laughs> yeah. Why, I talk it why? up to something you said in the book about the bell curve. Uh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think there are some leaders that get it, some that don't get it, some that want to evolve, some that don't want to evolve, um, some that will never evolve. But I, but I think more times than not, you know, I, I think the blessing of me living around the world, the one thing that's really forced me to do is, is really introspective mm -hmm. and to really develop my self-awareness and learn people and, and understand nuance of culture and things like that. And, and that's a really blessed, a big blessing, believe me. Um, what you also learn is that uh, leadership comes in different styles and stripes. And, you know, for me, there's been a consistent theme about uh, um, the inability to communicate, the inability to be transparent, the inability to, to engage in the actual development, because for, for, for whatever reason, a lot of leaders can't get out of their own way because they're stuck doing a particular job that they don't have support in or on or with for themselves. And so it's this huge cycle of, I really want to be a better leader, but I don't have time or space. I really want to help my team become better and more cohesive, but I have ego issues or I have jealousy issues or I have competency issues um, and I have no support on my end to get better. Or I've seen the other side of it. I think I'm pretty good, like sliced bread, so I don't improve. And that's the mm -hmm. worst kind of leader, by the way. Um, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. writing that book kind of came from Two, two, two really veins, if you will. Um, one was my, my lack of positive experience with leaders, whether it was with mm -hmm. myself or um, with those around me. But two, it was the podcast I used to do called the Executive After Hours Podcast, 
And, you know, with that, uh, similar in vain with yours, I interviewed 120 executives from Fortune 2 to entrepreneurs, everything in between. And I, and I really interviewed them about their personal journey. I never actually asked them about their job or, you know, what success looked like. I didn't really care. I kind of wanted to know, you know, uh, the tagline was, I care about who you are, not what you do, because who you are will define what you do. And the doing isn't the job. The doing is the actions in that. Um, and so for me, those two veins was kind of the final kick in the face, if you will, to like, yeah. I just need to be in the space. I'm more passionate about it. I'm more interested in it. Um, but being in marketing is a great skill set and other avenues yeah. in your life. Yes, I think that is uh, what well, certainly in other avenues that revolve around how people make decisions, right? And what, yeah. what causes them to make one decision over another decision. Um, and mm -hmm. that's one of the things that was interesting as I um, read through the book about the idea, you know, that you probably have had an opportunity to read many books, hear many folks talk about leadership. And uh, I appreciate your candor about a struggle with leadership. And I think part of it, part of the struggle is um, translating someone else's experience into something that is tangible for you. Mm. Mm. And yeah. oftentimes what people do is they tell you their experience um, and then you're supposed to glean from that how to apply it in your own life. Yeah. And I, and I think there are, there are learnings in, in individuals' life lessons as a leader, right? right? There's, there's looking at times where a leader may have failed and decide to look at the positive opposite of what they grew from that. And that lesson can be espoused to the group. But what happens is that there's a kind of action item that needs to happen in those meetings, right? If, if they're really trying to espouse values, they should give those in the meeting space to mm -hmm. write down their own experience mm -hmm. for their own learning. Um, but we don't do that. You know, we kind of, you know, typically as human beings, we look through our own lens. And when you look through your own lens, that means, they're rose-colored and often aren't the same color lens as the other person on the other side of the table. So, And, and I will say they're rose-colored, and for many, they're opaque. <laughs> and that's problematic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 opaque. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and those, those are leaders who don't necessarily want to learn either. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. just here, tell me what to do, and let me move on. <laughs> yeah, which is unfortunate because there's, you know, then that's their boss's problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's their leader's problem. Mm -hmm. So then why is their leader not inspiring them? And, and you know, I think, you know, um, I, I don't deem myself a leadership expert. I think you've done probably way more than I ever have in the space. But, you know, um, I think that's part of the transactional or trans transactional the part of the problem of the transaction between human beings, right, is our own junk gets in the way, our own mess gets in the way of doing mm -hmm. what's right versus trying to be right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that that's a struggle for a lot of leaders because their egos are fragile. You know, we, we many of us grew up in a dysfunctional house where parents didn't lift us up, they tore us down. Um, mm -hmm. And we, we bring a lot of that into the workplace, unfortunately. And if it doesn't feel safe, um, if you don't feel like you're engaged in your job, it all manifests and bubbles over, and it's uh, it's a mess, you know. 
Yeah, and it's hard to find a way out of it uh, because everybody's got their own mess, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and we personalize our mess. It, you know, yeah. it's only mine. It's only me. No one else has to deal with this problem uh, per se. Um, I always say, you know, everybody has pain, um, and it's not my job to judge how how much pain you're in. I just need to know you're in pain. So now the question is, do you want to stay there? Yeah. You know, it's all, and I, don't, I didn't come up with this. I don't know where I heard it. So I would give the citation to whoever's it is, but I, I don't know. Um, but I often say it's the difference between moving from it happened to me to it happened for me. And, you know, that preposition is so valuable in the chemical explosion in your brain yeah. to look at, look at your life and problems a bit differently. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm constantly trying to espouse as we're building our company. You know, my, my two key things are always uh, do right, not be right. And yeah. um, it, it happened to, it happened for me, not to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think that that's something that as a leadership expert like yourself and you talk to other people, I think there's a really good chance to, to have that conversation with them, you know, because that victim mentality is really the, the debilitating um, and demoralizing for those around you. Right. And, you, it, well, now we put a better word on it. We call it fatigue. So there's diversity fatigue and compassion fatigue and communication fatigue and decision-making so tell me fatigue. more about that. Tell, tell um, me more about that. What's, what's diversity fatigue? Like, what does that look like? I'm curious. So diversity fatigue now looks like we've been working at trying to um, move from diversity to inclusion to belonging uh, to engagement for over 50 years, and we're still doing it, and we're still dealing with the basics of, of um, bias, Mm-hmm, um, both sure. structural, individual, as well as group. Um, and for yeah. the most part, all probably my opinion, I don't have any research on it, but I would be willing to bet if somebody did research, 90-plus percent of all diversity training is about the individual and does not look at group think or how we mm. fit in. That magic word now is fitting in. Uh, yeah. and fit in to make me comfortable, right? Um, and we don't look at structural. We don't see how the interaction between the three actually maintains us in the same place. We can change the names. We can change, yeah. you know, kind of the superficial things that happen. Uh, but until we begin to really look at how the three interact, um, because mm-hmm. you can't change a system if you only change one side, you actually have yeah. to change all three sides, how I think about it, how the group thinks about it, how structurally what keeps us in place, then n- nothing really changes. And people are tired of the question, what will it take? I'm doing my best because they are doing their best. I mean, I, I really think people are doing their best that they know. And we don't know how to make change of such a um, emotional, impactful way. So compassion fatigue is the same mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know, I need to understand your point of view. I need to give you feedback, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, I think you wrote about that in your in the book on yeah. compassion, right? Yeah. When does the person take responsibility for their own lens that they look through and 
has to take responsibility and accountability for the decisions and the actions you have based on your own point of view and what you really, really want, but that really, really want that you don't want to tell somebody about, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's hard, right? I mean, yeah. and, and a couple a couple of thoughts on that, which I, which I really appreciate that perspective. The, the diversity one, uh, and, and this is coming from, a, you know, probably the most privileged sect in society, middle-aged white man. Um, uh, I, I truly think it's, it's because we, we're not approaching it with the right mix of people typically from diversity. You know, um, we tend to select others that are supposed to represent the rainbow, you know, mm-hmm. and without the diversity of voice in the process, you're just getting a voice in the process often. And often if it's multiple voices, they tend to be multiple voices of the same background. So now you're mm-hmm. all approaching it with the same lens, with the same previous biases. And that's counterproductive to having a bigger, larger conversation. I mean, this is what I love about Canada or a lot of European countries. You just, you just don't, um, you don't come across the issue as often as you do in the U.S., I feel like. Uh, maybe it's different, but, but it's not as prevalent, it seems like. On the compassion one, I think this is really interesting because, you know, we're, we're, you, you, if you're, I think compassion is so important to understand the other person's point of view. It doesn't, doesn't mean that you have to forego your perspective. And often the compassion thing is to say, we, we don't agree. I want to hear your side and I need you to hear my side. But it's the listening between those interactions, which is the most important part. And if the listening is attuned, then mutual respect is given. And then the compassion fatigue isn't so exhausting because you're not walking on eggshells. You're actually producing a better outcome at the end. Um, well, it, it, in the implicit thing that you or implicit thing you said is, but that there is a goal. And I think compassion without a yeah. goal um, is where you that wind up with That was way smarter, fatigue. by the way, Denise. Yeah. <laughs> that was way smarter. I don't know about that, but I I think that, you know, as I work with all kinds of people, leaders in particular, part of the problem is, is we assume that we both have the same goal. And that is, that is the invisible elephant in the room. Uh, We haven't decided that we actually understand what the common goal is because of the other things that you talked about. Uh, My perception, your perception. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. The lack of, lack of, and that's the idea of shared purpose, right? In the yes. organization, what's the shared purpose? You know, as I'm as I'm building Q change, you know, my co-founder and I, we we you know we got into a heated discussion yesterday about a product feature, but we don't hold it against each other because we share a vision. Right. So we know it's a momentary thing. We both are really good at talking about it afterwards. You know, I should have handled this differently, or I should have said that differently. Um, but it's never meant as disrespect. It's meant as I'm passionate about making whatever we're making exponentially mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. And to your point, we have a shared goal. Yeah. We have a shared outcome. And that makes everything else uh, a lot less friction-focused, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, no. That is, that's exactly what it is. We, we, you know, how many times you read studies about we all show up to the meeting and the the right thing to do is to set out the agenda ahead of time because you have people who learn differently, who consume information differently, who think about mm-hmm. things differently, who might need to research to be prepared and to feel prepared when they get to the meeting. We We say send out the agenda so that you create the structure in the room 
to make sure that we're all sharing, I like to say shared understanding. We understand why we're here, what are the goals. We have shared meaning. Oh, this is what a good meeting looks like because you've given us the structure, mm -hmm. which is the agenda. Mm -hmm. And now what are the shared expectations? And so you clearly say at the end of this meeting, blah, 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 blah. So we know that intellectually, right? And yet mm -hmm. we don't do it. Yeah. Because I'm too busy. And I think because, well, everybody knows. Correct, correct, correct. Well, it's one of the two. And I think, you know, I see that now. And I don't know how you correct that in an organization. I don't know how you give people permission to create space. Mm -hmm. Because culturally, outside or just life, you know, if you're a high achiever or you're driven uh, or you have an ego or you have concerns about someone judging you, like all of the interpersonal pressures really almost disable us from getting space to do the right thing. Most of us know the right thing, but we feel pressure to get something else done. We got pressure to be on the MIDI. We got pressure to lead the same. You know, um, in, in my book, I said one of the toughest things to do um, is to say no to your boss. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, and I am a huge advocate of saying no. It's gotten me in trouble in organizations for sure, but it, but I always try to frame it in, I'm saying no because I, I need to be better at this, which has a bigger impact down the road. If you want to help me with whatever that X is, I'm glad, I'm happy to be on the Y, you know, but I can't do both and do them both at 100% because I also need to decompress at night. I also have a family. I also need to have balance. Um, and, you know, I always, and I'm sure you do the same thing. I, I often lean on a lot of research and I say, we ignore the research. Why? Like the research is so clear on so many cultural and leadership uh, ideas, and yet we ignore it. And why? Because society tells us, without any research, that we need to go faster, we need to work harder, we need to work longer. And then as soon as you take a step back and you look at Germany, you look at Finland, you look at Norway, like their productivity is just as high as ours. They produce just as great of products. They've got just the greatest cultures, and they work probably 50% less than we do. You know, and I'm, I'm overstating the 50%, but they work 35-hour weeks. You know, mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't go and kill themselves at 40, 50, 60, 70. Not that 40 is killing yourself, but 60, 70. For what? Incremental gains? So anyhow, I get pretty passionate about that because I think it's such a fundamentally broken part of our society and organizations. And then leaders drive that a lot of times too. I'm guilty of it. Like sending an email at 10 at night to my co-founder. He's like, no, mm -hmm. I feel pressure to actually respond to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I get it. And I've given him verbal permission never to. But of course he feels pressure. Right. You know? When it pops it, up, you're going to answer. Yeah. yeah, you're going to answer. And when the power dynamic yeah. is there, even if it's unintended, like, I, you know, I have one leader just say, you know, well, I do it to get it off mine because I don't want to forget it. Yeah, well, that's nice that you're passing the buck. That you're passing yeah. the buck in absence of understanding the power that you have. And yeah. no matter what yeah. happens, you're the boss. <laughs> and if my boss yeah. sends me an email at 1.30 in the morning and it happens to wake me up or it, I look at it at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to be stressed to get the answer. It just, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's the piece that, that goes with your, you know, the, the when I read your section on self-awareness, it brought up so many things about us that we are not self-aware about. Um, and so for particularly example, yeah, as you, yeah. well, in particular, um, the thing that I, I face all the time is 
people who ascend the you know go up the corporate hierarchy faster than their ability to consume and learn right consume mm-hmm. knowledge and learn and so no matter what i always say when you look in a person's role you only see that which shows up and how often are you actually seeing that person right you mm-hmm. might see your boss really in a meeting, you might see them in the hallway, you might see them at your desk, but you don't really know that job until you get that job. Yeah. And then when you get the job, you realize there's this whole other stuff. (laughs) 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 That has to be in it, but nobody really talks to you about how to manage that. And the higher you go in the organization, the more it's about relationship management, your idea of relatedness and likability, right? Yeah. Because you don't have all the resources, and your job is to make sure that the process works, not necessarily that the people do the work, but the process of getting work done has to work. The higher you are in the organization, the more your focus ought to be on external information, looking outside, seeing what's changing, and making sure that the process of getting work done inside your organization is actually working so that it meets what you predict is going to come. And too often, and, and, you know, it's, it's the other way. <laughs> you know. Well, that's also the ego. Right? I mean, yes. I, mean oh, yes. I think the, the, oh. ego, the ego is one of the most, it could be the most impactful on the way up, the mm-hmm. corporate culture, and the most destructive at the top. Yes. Um, and, you know, the leaders, uh, the CEOs, the executives that really thrive really do a great job of parking their ego. That doesn't mean turning their confidence off. It means saying that, again, I kind of go back to, it's, it's, it's really a problem in our society. Uh, it's human nature, actually, I wouldn't say our society, about having to be right in an argument or disagreement. You know, um, when I, when I, when my co-founder, I'll give him name, uh, <laughs> his name is Rob. Uh, when mm-hmm. Rob and I have discussions, I, I, I don't, I try not to, I'm human, so I sometimes do it. I try not to start from the position of, I need to prove my point. I try to start from the position of, what does doing right look like? Doing right to me always looks like listening to their perspective, always their perspective first. And then if I still believe I am right, then we try to go on a journey to get to the right place, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but but it, it's I don't start with the position of I must be right, so I'm not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because as soon as you shut yourself off to the possibility of another, then you're really shutting, shutting yourself off to the possibility of growth and, yeah. and really a better choice. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, yes, it does. It does. It does. And, and that is the, it's the piece that we talk about when we talk about listening. You know, we think of, you know, the brain, you know, it has two minds, in in essence, running at the same time. There's the one that's in the forefront of you sitting there looking at a person and noticing the tie, the shirt, the, oh, what did they Mm -hmm. say? What did they not say? And then there's that second brain that's going, well, he's wrong. She's wrong. How could you come up with that thought? You know what? This is really wasting my time. And those (laughs) shoes are awful. (laughs) (laughs) And why am I sitting here listening to you when I really need to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the yeah, hard part is, is under, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, the hardest part is, you know, in terms of being a leader is this, you know, to me the interaction between this 
relatedness and self-awareness because you have to know that that's human, right? And that yeah. it takes a certain level of discipline to focus the brain on being able to listen well. But the other mm-hmm. side of it is is also being aware of your impact on others simply because you're present. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my lesson in that one was, you know, I got promoted. I was the director um, of an organization, you know, I had these folks. I was still, I was still in my oats, right? Yeah. Um, I've got it, whatnot. And one of the things I, if I'm not careful, I, I think out loud. And so I need that interaction to hear myself <laughs> yeah. before I make a decision. Well, I was in a staff meeting doing that, left the staff meeting thinking, well, I still don't understand, came back to the staff meeting, and I had generated all of this work on my people, on the folks who reported to me, because huh. they didn't know the difference. They thought I was actually giving, they were trying to anticipate what I was doing and where I was going. They started a whole level of work to try and give that to me. And I'm sitting there going, that was a nice brainstorm, and I wanted you to tell me if I was in the, and they missed that. And I often remind leaders, how much work are you generating because you don't have a place or your staff Mm -hmm. doesn't understand we all need to think by talking. You know, mm. sometimes ideas sound you sound great in your head, and then you, you know fall out your mouth, and you go, "Who the hell can go?" Well, I think you also bring up another point. Is, is, is you brought two points? I think they're really important. Judgment, judgment kills everything, so we, yeah. we know that. But, but two, the idea of talking out loud is also if you're if you're if you're um, if you know that's one of your modalities to get to the end result, yeah. then set the expectation in the meeting. Hey, listen, I'm going to be talking out loud. Brainstorm with me, mm-hmm. you know. And that's part of you kind of being a bit vulnerable about part of your process. Yes. And yes. you know, in that vulnerability, you know, I do not believe that equals weakness. And I think yes. we're getting better at that, you know, because of the Brene Browns and, and things like that of the world. Uh, but I think that you know that to me, I mean, that's how I get to my best decisions. I, I just start rambling. And my co-founder just like takes notes until we get to a spot. We're like, that's it right there. Right, you know? right, right. And, have, and you just kind of spiral down. To, yeah. And some people are very linear in their thinking, you know, this, then that, then this. But often for me, with the original ideas, it, it's like getting lost on them and trying to find your way back. But I mm-hmm. have to go through that process yeah. to get to the best idea, you know, or best solution. Yes. And then there's the opposite. There's those individuals who literally need to hear the idea, go away, ponder mm-hmm. it, and then are ready to come back. Well, if, you know, some leaders think, well, that person must be slow and, and time, you know, well, that, I, what I needed you to do over there, you know, we've, we're past that. We've already made a decision. Well, why did yeah. you ask me? Why did you, yeah. why yeah. did you want? And so all of these things make it difficult for us circling back to your question around diversity and inclusion. All of that mm. is what makes us fatigued over this because I do mm. think everyone comes from a genuine place of, you know, I want to be accepted, I want to fit in, I want to be myself, but I have to figure out, A, what that means, who am I? You know, on in your book, I highlighted, I keep going back to your book because I read a lot of books and very few yeah. of them stick with me. But um, huh. on page 24, you, you is, wrote, that, is that a compliment? Am I getting a compliment? There? Yes, <laughs> that is a compliment. 
<laughs> that is a cute. Well, I oh. really am humbled by that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. but here, here is the quote. When you learn about other people's weaknesses and uh, strengths and weaknesses, successes and failures, you start to see that even the leaders among them are not all that different from you and me. Authenticity can be the great equalizer in human interaction. That one has stuck with me for a couple weeks now. In, Did I write in that? Just peel it. Yes. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Yay me. Yep, break your arm. Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> Quote, page 24. Get the book, people. Yeah, you know, that, that's a great little quote. I'm happy. I know, right? <laughs> I know. But it does encapsulate why organizations have, and leaders in particular, but organizations are just a group of people who decide they're going to work in the same, same place, right? Yeah, hopefully yeah. on the same, uh, hopefully, hopefully on a common goal, but most likely. <laughs> 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 but it also it it get it's such a introspective as well as prospective um look at you know what I would want is the ability to be authentic and we toss that word around like we toss around you know oh, yeah social yeah, media yeah. Or Coke, yeah. Like yeah, yeah yeah it's such a brand now that it diminishes yeah. the human aspect of what authenticity actually means. And but it all but the statement also calls us to constantly be looking at ourselves and how we interact with other people and to know ultimately that no matter where we find ourselves in an argument that's um hateful or an argument that is productive, right? That that the goal of both of us really is is about to be able to bring our true self forward. So I'm glad I made you laugh with my comment. First of all, so uh, <laughs> secondly, um, I, I I think you know, this is fundamentally uh, the blessing of the of the life choices I've made, and I'm not trying to sound like an arrogant you know twat, but you know um, when I was being raised, my mom and dad both worked full time uh, full time in the summer I was kind of off by myself and I had a really dear family of mine um and in fact she's in the acknowledgments in the front named Linda Guzman and I would go there for about three years of my life every single day in the summer she had four kids stay-at-home mom a very hippie very liberal family um, they would bring in their friends who were Native Americans were Hispanics were you know black like they didn't care mm -hmm. so that to me um just kind of at a very impressionable age of, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, really sets the tone about human beings. Mm -hmm. We all put our pants on the same way, mm -hmm. right? We all brush our teeth the same way. So, mm -hmm. like, why why do we fundamentally make decisions about – and I'm still guilty of it. I still have my biases with it. But But I think fundamentally deep down inside of me – you know, I do believe that. I do believe we all come from a genuine place of a flawed human being, that we're allowed to be our flawed human being and allowed to express those failures in a way that judgment isn't part of the process. It allows the better version of us to come out. Because once we feel like, you know, we can peel back 
layers of the onion and and the smell's not so bad. Right. <laughs> then we can right. really I'm really working on that analogy right there. But 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 the but you get the point of like that's when you truly actually become um not only the best leader, but the best human being. And I think those are the best leaders. An additive to it is that when we talk about leadership, you know, that's another one of those words like authenticity that's so, you know, mm-hmm. has been taken and we I don't even think people really know what that means. But leadership is about the ability to inspire others to act for a common goal and make sure there's a process in place that allows us to be our best self, right? Something like that is really yeah, it. Yeah. And from that perspective, we all are leaders at some level. We're always inspiring, influencing uh, somebody, yeah. you know, yeah. at some level. Then you layer on the role that you have. So some people have a role in an organization, which is back to the structural piece, that says that yeah. you you have this is this is your authority to direct and guide this level of resources, these kinds of resources towards a particular end. And then what we forget is in that leadership is inspiring others because every organization is a collection of processes that have to work together so that everything flows towards that common end. And every role is important, not less than... Mm. Everyone, everyone's a piece of the cog, right? Everyone's a piece yeah. of the pie. They're all part of the ingredients. And I think, yeah. you know, in leadership, you know, you have a group who are who are in organizations now that that sharing was their life, is their life, is what they've done their whole life. And so there's a real big movement to shared leadership, you mm-hmm. know, collective leadership. And again, that's another place where if you're a leader, ego judgment has to be put aside. Because those, you know, those who were born in the 2000s who were coming into the workplace, you know, or late 1990s, their whole entire life is out there. They're parents. Mm-hmm. Most of them are authentic. Most of them want to be part of the solution. Most of them um, really want to do good. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that as a leader, especially if you grew up in kind of a command control, which is kind of the old model, you, you need to pivot and be open to having collaborate with these with these individuals across the organization. And the literature is really clear about this, right? When you have collaboration and you have a mixture of voices in the room, you actually get a better choice. Mm-hmm. You can make better decisions. You actually grow your business faster. And it's just so counterintuitive, you know, when these executive teams go off and create a strategy for their organization, well, they're really missing critical pieces of the puzzle, those who are going to do it. So how about you have them in the room to help formulate what this looks like, because there's a lot of smart people who just don't want to be executives. They don't have that ambition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, my wife is a great example. She was working at Express Scripts um, uh, way back when, mm-hmm. before we got mm-hmm. married, and she got tapped to move into, like, senior leadership. And mm-hmm. she looked at the, the hours they were working, and she's like, I don't want to do that. I have right. no desire, you know. And she's pretty smart, you know? So, I mean, there's a whole world of those people who just don't have that ambition but have the ability to contribute at a very high level. Um, and I so think yeah. and that's, that's where the structure doesn't match, right? So that yeah. the only way you can get more money, the only way you can get to do bigger, better work is that you have to be in the executive ranks versus 
where does the where we need smart people who just add good critical thinking to the mix mm-hmm. and should yeah. be rewarded for that kind of critical thinking that is needed because everybody can't do everything and not everything is for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And so structurally, we keep these organizations out of the model, so so I have a little bit of a knee-jerk on command and control, because command and control is really about boundaries and responsibilities. And there's okay. nothing wrong with boundaries and responsibilities. As long as you understand everybody has a, has a, has a puzzle piece to play back to the process structure. Yeah, so we haven't changed the way we think about organizations to mm-hmm. allow for what we need today, which is when a person could consume all information, I think of doctors and whatnot, you know, we didn't have specialists. We had GPs who pretty much did most everything except maybe be a surgeon or something like that. Um, (laughs) And now it's almost impossible to consume the knowledge and be enough of an expert in all things about the human body. And so we have specialties. Well, where's the role in an organization for the same thing? Not everybody is going to be at the level necessary for a larger organization. Maybe you could do it as a small, because you don't need that level of expertise. But as an organization grows, you really do need to have a place for people whose specialized knowledge shouldn't necessarily be capped per se just because they don't have a leadership or an executive, I'll say an executive role but that they truly can be a leader in that knowledge, tapped as you need it, tapped yeah. as helping the organization think better, make better decisions, understand the impact of changes that are going to come, and they're coming faster and faster. Not everybody so, wants I mean, that it, role either, but somehow we have to yeah. rethink <laughs> structure, right? Yeah. This might be a great pivot to kind of share with you what we're doing at Change because yeah. I think we, we solve a lot of problems that, that are, are just broken. You know, when you look at the current way leadership is delivered inside an organization, you know, and, and the current structure of understanding how you're doing as a leader, you know, typically leadership in an organization, you find out the annual review, the 360 process that you do all this work for and put it in the desk, you know, your, your performance as a leader is really a leg indicator by the organization. And then when you go do these trainings and you go off and you learn all these great content or you go off to Harvard for a week or, you know, they bring in a center of creative leadership, that's a lot of money that they're spending on a leader to have them go back and really forget all of the lessons within three weeks. It just doesn't work. (laughs) Because this is how we, we spend 18 years plus of our formative life getting taught in a room, given content, go memorize, regurgitate it. And so when you get to the corporate world, that's just how people perceive we still need to keep learning. And so we call, I call this passive engagement, right? It's all passive. Through my experience um, of learning, and you know, I've, I've worked in higher ed now for uh, 12 years, I know there's a different way. And so what we've done is that we have taken traditional leadership behaviors, and, and we think that everybody's a leader, but we, we really focus on high potentials as a go-to-market strategy, but, but it's much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. We, we, we take their 360s, we take their assessments, and we make them alive in real time. Mm-hmm. And so the way we do that is that if you, Denise, are working on uh, the ability to be concise and direct in meetings, like clear and direct, because you're somebody who tends to meander when you talk and get lost in your points and really knows where you're going, 
right? Um, and that doesn't seem like that's you, but in this scenario, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and so what happened is that as you walk into a meeting, we would send you a nudge on your phone that would say, Denise, remember, be succinct and direct to get to impact team, to, to have the greatest impact on the team. As you walk in, you're getting that nudge. Now, this is great, but here's the reality is that how do we know, we mean the leader, we mean the team, that you're actually engaging in that? So mm-hmm. what we do is that after that, the meeting's over, and we know this because we have your schedule and your calendar, we'll send you another nudge and say, Denise, how do you feel like you did mm-hmm. at being distinct and direct one to five? Mm-hmm. You give yourself a four, but we ask those team members around you that are in your group. They could be above you, horizontal, and below you. How did Denise do being succinct and direct? Now, they give you a two out of five. Mm-hmm. So in real time on your phone, you are finding out that you have significant uh, leader team perceptual gap. And so we then give you a learning opportunity. We call them nano learning moments. Okay. It says, hey, there's a gap. Do this next time or try this next time. And the way we've built the system is there's an escalation. So going back to, to, be, to being succinct and direct, let's say you get nudged to do that three times over a month because you're working on a communication strategy. So each time, the intervention gets more intense. So the first time, it's one to two-minute content in between meetings. That's the goal, right? Mm-hmm. The next one might be a five- to seven-minute video. The next one will be a Harvard business case. And if you still have a gap, we then recommend formal training. Now, think about the dollars that you're saving the organization in that process, because all this content you're consuming in real time in the flow isn't that expensive. Right, and right, if you right. Haven't, and if you haven't evolved and you haven't closed that gap, then you need probably formal training. You need, you need a much higher level of intervention. But here's the other thing. So once you get those nano learning moments, we then give you the opportunity to ask for written feedback from your team, because that's the second best form. That's really the first best form of self-awareness and development. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. we do is we do it in a couple of ways. One, we do it with the team, uh, the leader team perceptual gap. Mm-hmm. That's your first self-awareness button. Oh, wow. I thought I showed up. I didn't do it. The second one is the learning moment. The third one is the qualitative feedback or written feedback. All of that is in the flow of day in real time. And so, you know, we think that this type of development tool, not only is it measurable, which is huge, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's when you learn and when you need to learn in the moment. You know, there's these amazing LMS systems out there, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They get utilized between 5 and 10%. Learning Why management systems, have, right? Yeah, 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 learning management gotcha. Okay. Why do companies have them? Because they're supposed to. Okay, great. Well, the utilization rate sucks. You're spending a lot of money on it, and no one's actually learning. So we take this idea of, like, if you go to a center of creative leadership and they've got their behaviors, we make those alive. You know, if, you're, if you have an internal culture you're trying to, to, to drive through leaders, we take those values and make them live. So we make the content that usually sits in the cloud and make it happen real time and then measure it to make sure that you're actually doing it. And then if mm. you're not, we give you learning opportunities to improve straight away. Yeah, what I like about the biggest complaint, so one of the things was, you know, my listeners will not but share with you, for well over 25 years, I was I was in HR, 
15 of those head of HR. And the thing I hated most was the annual performance review. Because the number one comment that I got all the time at all levels was, why didn't you tell me when I could do something about it? Yep. And when I tell leaders now, that's exactly right. When I tell leaders now, I said, you know, know, this is the time when people are calling about, oh, you know, I did these performance reviews and, you know, they're, you know, my people are mad and I don't want to do them and da 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 I said, well, let me tell you what they're going to be pissed off at. Not what you say, but the fact that you didn't tell them in time to do something about it and now you affected their money. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're really pissed off at. Totally. Because it, and then that goes back to, now we're very leader focused, but if you think about team focused, you know, it can be flipped in a different direction in this, this particular software. But, mm-hmm. but we think that if the leader allows themselves to be opened up to this, we make it easier for them to actually infect the rest of their team with the same methodology. When mm-hmm. they start seeing how they're growing, how they're different. Having looked at the landscape of what's going on out there in HR tech, there are companies that do some feedback tools. Usually you have to go to a website or browser. Right. There's companies that do a bit of nudges to get you to kind of try to engage in conversations. None of it has the highest level of efficacy and impact on the individual without driving their self-awareness, without driving that gap. Um, And and so we think that we can actually deliver, that we can deliver the content they want to be delivered at 50% of the cost of the traditional leadership development because they're not, mm-hmm. everyone's not doing the same thing. They're not all going to those, you know, week-long courses. They're not right. all getting 100 executive coaches because yeah. they're not all going to need it now, mm-hmm. you know? So, well, the other side of really it is, about is it. Um, yeah, it takes out the, the, what we know is the forgetting curve, right, which basically mm-hmm. says that within 24 hours you're going to, forget 50% of it, and in seven days, you only have an impression of a key point that sticks with you, but you cannot remember exactly what it is. So you might have a great experience at all of those without a focus on sustainability, which is what you're bringing to the party. Yeah. It it only bumps you up, and now we leave you to your own devices, which we know the brain, the body, all love habits. And those habits yeah. will take over over a certain period of time. It's why we don't we don't change as fast as we'd like to, because our habits will come in, and it, to make a different decision costs more in energy than to make the same unconscious decision. And the body right. wants to conserve in, energy. So yeah. Anyway, uh, this has been fabulous, and 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 usually. <laughs> I have short 30-minute content, and we have gone about an hour. Uh, no, but before we go, <laughs> before we go, so if somebody's interested in following up on this book and or mm-hmm. just talking to you about, you know, where you guys are going, how would they touch with you? The easiest would be uh, J. Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, mm-hmm. at QChange, the, the, the uh, letter Q, change.com. Okay. Um, and that's... No, I'll respond to that. Book you can get on Amazon or Kindle. And, and I would recommend, by, by the way, to your audience, if anyone who likes audiobooks more than, than written books, get the audiobook. I no. hired three actors that <laughs> act out. You know, in the book, you know, there's a bunch oh, of interviews. Yeah, they yeah, they yeah. act out all the interviews. And so the online book is really dynamic. Okay. Um, and, so and the I, name I of the really book is? That. Yeah, it's called The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders that Thrive in Adversity. All right. 
You heard it here, folks. For all my listeners, I so appreciate your time, your energy, and your attention. I know you could be doing a hundred other things, and I am honored and humbled that you would spend uh, this time with me. At, uh, if you have any questions, you know how to send a note to me. If you want to hear more of this, click subscribe, and you will automatically get the podcast when they come out. And with that, uh, James, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. And to everyone else, I hope that you find the humanity that you're looking for in your workday and every day. Musician. And finally, I have two other requests. One is, please, please, please leave a review on this, either on Apple or Google, wherever you get your podcast. And the other is, don't forget, please look up my book, Remarkable Leadership Lessons, Change Results, One Conversation at a Time. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, in paperback, as well as Kindle version, Kindle versions. And with that, it's a wrap. Talk to you next week. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>